Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to continue our journey through the gospel according to Mark. And as you may recall, that journey is going to look at the gospel of Mark, and it is unique to Matthew, Luke, and John, in that Mark was, we learned this from Papias, who wrote in about 140 AD, Irenaeus in 185 AD, and these these fathers of the early church tell us that Mark actually traveled with um, with Peter as Peter preached the gospel, and as a result, he heard these stories over and over and over again, and he wrote them down, and we're told he didn't write them down necessarily in chronological order, but he did write them that was absolutely accurate and was kept from error. So I'm going to suggest to you, and we're going to see this very clearly this morning as we go through our passage in Mark chapter 11, Mark writes thematically. Uh, His concern is not so much the chronology of it, but he is writing to tell us a story that will impact us, and I think his purpose is to change the nations, change this world by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So before I do that, before we get into the the, the sermon today, let's pray, okay? Father, we lift up this time to you as we're gathered together. We confess to you that our understanding, and I include myself in this, is so feeble at times. We need to hear from you, God. We don't know. We don't so much need to hear the words of men, but the words of your spirit. So I ask you, Lord God, that your spirit would be the one speaking this morning to our hearts. And the Father, you would take your truth and you would show us this morning, every single one of us individually, what are we to do with this truth? And Spirit of God, as you search our hearts, how are we to respond? How are we to live in a way in line with the truth that we're going to hear this morning and read about. So, Spirit of God, we invite you to be our teacher this morning. Open our eyes, open our heart to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. So, I I remember when I was a teenager, um, I probably was 15, 16 years of age, and I started going. I say started because I actually went to this conference like four or five times uh, when it came to Philadelphia. I was um, how many of you are Eagles fans here this morning? Yeah, there's a couple of Eagles. Yes, you, you, by by relationship, you're an Eagles fan. Thank you. He's my brother-in-law. So, son-in-law. And so, as a result, you know, just for me, living in Wilmington, Delaware, 30 minutes from North Philly, I, I am an Eagles fan. But we would go to Philadelphia for this conference. And I can remember the speaker each time would do what he called chalk talks. Now, they're very cool. Now, I don't know of anyone who does them anymore, but he was very skilled in communicating truth, but he was also skilled in, in artist work. And since he had been a youth pastor for many years, he'd kind of incorporated that aspect that he had learned many years ago into his ministry that he was doing that day. So we're talking, by the way, like the late 1970s, if you're wondering. So he's he's doing this chalk talk on this big board, and he's creating this marvelous scenic lake scene, um, colored chalk, the whole nine yards. And by the way, there's a whatever type of black light, I guess it is at the top. When he's all done, that light changes, does whatever, and it brings out certain things in his artwork that you just, the crowd would just say, wow, I can't do that this morning. I'm not that good of a drawer, so you're going to thank me later, but I'm not going to do a chalk talk this morning. But while he was doing the chalk talk, drawing this beautiful scenery with mountains and such around it, he began to tell a story. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I don't remember his story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you my story that would fit in with this and what he was trying to teach. When I was 14 years of age, I was a squirrely kid. That is the best way to describe me. 14 years of age, I'm just now giving my heart to Christ. I grew up in a Christian church. Uh, my, my dad was a choir director. Um, everywhere he, he led the choir of various churches, that's where our family went. And so I was exposed to the gospel over and over again. In, in my opinion, uh, that was a good time during the sermons to catch 40 winks. And I just tuned out. But come to age 40, 14, there we go, 14, my older brother who's three and a half years older than me, sits down and he shares the gospel with me. And I'm thinking, Dan, give me a break. 
Friday. It's not even Sunday. What are you doing here? And he just, he was bold and, and he shared the gospel with me because that year his life had been changed and he wanted to see his younger brother be changed as well. So <clears throat> I'm reading through this little gospel track, Am I Going to Heaven? Find Out Inside. And, and as a result, I realized I've been going to church like all my life and I'm not even a Christian. I'd never truly surrendered my heart to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that day, I did that. And, and I wish that that was the end, okay? That, that that was like, wow, my life has totally changed now. That right there, what God did that day, and it, it, I, I, I could tell you the, the ways in which he had changed me, that would be like this beautiful scene that this gentleman had painted with his chalk. The lake, the surrounding grass, the mountains, and God did something absolutely beautiful in my life. But there were some serious issues that God needed to deal in, deal with in me that, can I just be really honest with you? It repulsed people. I pushed people away because of this junk in my life. So here's what the speaker did. He's talking about this story. I think it's about a girl and how she got saved and, and whatnot. And then he took a black piece of chalk and he just began to put like six to eight different marks on the board. And the audience is like, oh, my goodness, this was beautiful. He's destroyed it. Can I just be honest with you? That's how I felt my life was like. God, you were doing something amazing. And then all of these insecurities, these angers, anger started coming up. That's the way I viewed it. Now, though that junk had always been there, God was now bringing it to the surface through a series of circumstances. Like, I remember walking, see, my dad was the track coach, and I remember walking into the weight room, and the guys were working out with weights. And I'm so embarrassed to even say this. I'm in like ninth, 10th grade, something like this, right? And I walk in, and I walk up to one guy, and I tell him, that, get, get a load of this. I tell him, you know what, you're not doing it right. You, you need to do that, and then I walk him through the proper way. And... My dad's top runner comes up. He's a senior, and he pulls me aside, pulls me out of the weight room, and he says, Mike, what do you think you're doing? This is your dad's track team, and it's not yours. And you don't come into this weight room and tell these guys how to do it right. And he just began to rip me open. And can I be honest with you? I deserved it. I deserved it. And I walked out of that, that, that room thinking, he just didn't get it. <laughs> he didn't get it. No, here's the reality. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. So here's what God did. I'm, I'm starting to see some of these black marks in my life, right? I call them insecurities, anger, uh, perfectionism. And, and, and I hurt people with this. God brought a youth pastor into my life. Said, Mike, let's go for a walk. Great, he wants my company. <laughs> Wrong. I needed his company, right? And he begins to point out some of these things. Mike, I know your heart's good. I know this is what you're wanting to do. And, but when you say things like this and that, it pushes people away. Ouch. Okay. God is beginning to humble me now. Like a month later, I'm driving home from a Bible study with one of my closest friends. And I begin to just in my pride, talk about these things that I was doing. And my friend just looked over at me and he begins to speak the truth in love, but begins to point out my pride. Black marks. I'm just thinking, God, are you serious? No sooner do I surrender my heart and I'm coming into your kingdom Look what you did to my life. Look at all these black marks. It looks terrible. And, and in all honesty, for about a year, I struggled. I struggled with depression. I struggled with, God, what is this? That, man, these, these black marks, I repulse people. Who is this guy? And believe it or not, it was that year that God called me 
to one day become a pastor. Wow, does God have a sense of humor. And, and I just remember struggling this. And, and, and real, honestly, church, I was seeking God in prayer so much. And I was just saying, God, you, you need to do something here because I can't fix this. I need your grace. Because if you want me to preach the gospel, I don't want to preach the gospel and push people away. And God began to do something in my life. And opportunities after opportunities came up after that summer to share Christ. And God began to do something with those black marks in my life. Now, many of you, this morning, there's stuff in your life, and you know that God wants to change that. Because if he doesn't, you may find yourself never getting married. You may find yourself getting married. And then those things that that youth pastor and close friend pointed out in your life, I'm using that figuratively, whoever it is that has spoken to you, your spouse is now going to be the one to point them out. Woo, all right. Yeah, I married like the most imperfect person, right? No, the truth is... You are one of the most imperfect. But God is, is, is wanting to do something with these black marks. And this morning, as we look through this passage, Jesus begins to deal with Israel's black marks. But understand this, okay? Please understand this. There are two ways in which we can respond to this sermon to that spouse that now begins to point out some of these things that others have already tried to help you with. We call them blind spots. And that's what this man's chalk talk was about, dealing with blind spots. <clears throat> and so consequently, we now are, we, we can respond in two different ways when these things happen. Number one, we can become so filled with guilt that that's where we camp out. That's, I camped out in guilt for an entire year in my life. Now, it's not like my life was put on hold. God was still helping me and growing me, actually growing me probably in the most fertile time in my life to grow me. But I struggled. It was so hurtful, so hard. And God was beginning. He was speaking to me through his word. He was speaking to me through people. Um, and he was also encouraging me, don't get me wrong, he was encouraging me, I, had a, I made a good friend, and we would go to a Bible study, it was actually a, ho a home church that we went to Saturday nights, and this friend would pick me up and drop me off and all that, and, and he would just, he would speak truth, and, and it built me up and encouraged me, but man, God was really dealing with these black marks, these black lines in my life. I dealt with guilt for a long time. And that guilt settled in my heart, and I failed to find God's grace for those black marks in my life. That's an extreme. Can I just share very frankly with you, many people in the church, that's where they camp, they camp out there in the guilt because they don't understand God's grace. On the other hand, you have many people, and this is the way I was, when, <clears throat> excuse me, when that senior track runner spoke into my life, boy, does he have it all wrong. And, and, and we, 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 we repel the very thing that God is wanting to speak to us. We push people away and we even push God away. We treat it cavalierly. That's no big deal. There's no godly sorrow. And there consequently is no repentance, and therefore there is no place for God's grace. Those are the two extremes. And many people in the church, saved and unsaved, by the way, in the church, there's many who are saved and many who are unsaved. We tend to gravitate to those extremes. How do we find that middle ground? How do we deal with these black marks? Follow me as I read through this. And as we try and discern what is it that the Spirit of God is trying to speak to me to deal with my life in these areas. So important. It says in verse 12, 
Mark 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Bethany's probably about two miles from Jerusalem. It's on the Mount of Olives, but on the far east side. <clears throat> and he had been spending the night there. And it, it says that he, he was leaving Bethany and he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he, <coughs> excuse me, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, now remember this is um, the day after what we call Palm Sunday. Jerusalem had just welcomed him, palm branches. He was riding on a donkey, whole nine yards. <clears throat> now he comes into Jerusalem. He enters the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Jesus, this is not the way to popularity. My goodness, they welcomed you as king. What are you doing on Monday? He's clearing the temple. Listen, follow. He overturned the tables of the money, um, the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, so he's teaching them now, clears the temple, he's teaching them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching, including the teaching he just gave, that you have made this place a den of robbers. When evening came, they went out of the city. Again, back to Bethany. In the morning, as they, were, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So I have been living my life as if I had the coronavirus and was repelling people, right? And so now we come to this passage here, and the Israelites, in a sense, have been doing the very same thing. How you may ask? Well, here's what they did. They would, this is Passover week, okay? Monday, a Passover week. Their merchants would bring in their wares. In other words, um, anything having to do with sacrifices, like the poor people would generally buy doves. You would give offerings. To give offerings, you want to do it in the currency of Israel, not in the currency of Rome. So there was an exchange of, of monies, okay? And if you wanted to purchase stuff, you would do it with the currency of Israel, not the currency of Rome. So there was, <laughs> they're the money changers. The problem is that this was not just a distraction. Jesus says you've made it a den of robbers. So there was a lot of... Uh, unfairness going on here, selling things higher than what they should. But this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you can imagine in your mind the temple, and then you would have right in front of the temple the altar, uh, the brazen altar, huge brazen altar, then you would have what was commonly called the court of men, and then a little bit further east, actually, so we're going this east, you would have the court of the women. Surrounding all of this would be the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was for the very express purpose of inviting people from other nations to Israel to worship the one true God. That was access to worshiping the one true God. 
And so they would come to the court of the Gentiles. But now the court of the Gentiles was being used as a place for merchandising. It was used as a place for, um, for animals to do their thing right there in the court, to exchange for money, and, and not just money, but for a wrong profit, too high of a profit. And what they were doing is they were repelling the nations that God wanted to come to Jerusalem to seek him and find him. But the Jews just, the, 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 we need to understand that this was just an overflow of what was really in their hearts. This was just a, a show. This was like the fruit of who they really were. Jesus says, you know, a good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces what, church? Bad fruit. This is a lot of bad fruit. Not only was it bad fruit, but we know that these people were rejecting Jesus. They were like me before the age of 14. I had a pretense of being a Christian. I went to church. I Okay, I listened to at least the introduction to the sermon before I fell asleep, okay? Um, and then, of course, at the end of the sermon, we had to sing a hymn. And so, you know, I had to stand up and we'd sing, sing another hymn. And, uh, but you know what? I had this pretense of being a Christian, but I had never fallen in love with Jesus Christ because I had never grasped what the gospel was truly about, that Christ had come to rescue me from my sins, to pour out his grace upon my life to free me from, not just forgive me so I could go to heaven, but to be able to free me from my sin so that I would stop repulsing people, okay? <laughs> to be able to deal with those black marks in my life. And he came to rescue you from those black marks in your life too. So I, I was like Israel. I was a bad tree producing bad fruit. And Jesus needed to come to me and change me. Now, notice that Jesus does not, by the way, backing up the day before, he comes in and there is this air as people are shouting, Hosanna. You know, the son of David is what they call him. Hosanna meaning save. And they, be, they begin to praise him. Now, you remember the Pharisees hated that. Jesus comes in. He actually, Matthew tells us, he begins to heal people. And the children begin to do this as well in Jerusalem. What they saw their parents doing outside, they're doing it now. And Jesus, when he comes into Jerusalem as viewed as the king, where does he go? Does he go to Herod's palace to bring change? to bring revolution? Does he go to Pilate's praetorium, his judgment hall? He doesn't go to anywhere political. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. But let me tell you this. When the people worship God from their heart and their heart is truly changed, that is going to impact how they live and it's going to impact the laws and the very people that govern them. So if you're going to change a nation, change the heart of the people, then you will change the laws. So for Jesus, he's not going to go to the political arena. He's going to go to the religious arena because the religious arena was dead to its very roots. And so he comes in, and I spoke about anger a few weeks ago. He is angry. No, he is ticked. He is forcing these people out of the court of the Gentiles. He wouldn't even allow people to move their merchandise through the temple and as a shortcut. No, this is a place for the Gentiles to come and find God. And what are you doing? You're pushing them away. You are living your life and you are repulsing the world from God. There is no light here shining in the darkness. And so he strongly corrects them. Now, Luke chapter 13, I believe it's verses 6 through 9, 
Jesus gives a parable of a fig tree. The owner of the fig tree says this fig tree is not producing fruit. So I think we need to cut it down. It's been three years, no fruit. And he says to his, his laborer, he says, just cut the tree down and get rid of it. And the laborer says, tell you what, master, how about this as a plan? I know for three years, there's been no fruit, but <laughs> allow me <clears throat> the opportunity to dig around it and fertilize it. And then after a year, if there's still no more fruit, if there's still no fruit, then let's chop it down and get rid of it. And in reality, fig trees can do this. Generally, it's the, it's the, the, the trees that are, are wild They're, because there's a way, just like in, in Orlando, just like in Central Florida, there's a way to plant a, uh, an, an orange tree. If you just, orange trees, if you've ever been to a wild orange tree, they tend to be sour, uh, not very good. And there's a way that you have to uh, cross uh, an orange tree with what, what, what type of tree is it? And you have to splice it in. And I, I've forgotten the science of it. But the, the truth is, to really get good orange trees, you can't just let them grow wild. Now, this fig tree of this owner, had, had may well have, that may well have been the case. But it wasn't producing any fruit. And this is very common. These types of trees do not grow very well. Many of them don't produce fruit. All they produce is leaves. And so what Mark does and so, excuse me, so in the Jesus' parable, he, he gives them one more year. And, and the imagery here is the entire Old Testament is like that three-year time period. And this fig tree is just not producing any fruit. <clears throat> that one year is that time span that includes Jesus' ministry to 70 AD. So in a time of 40 years is characterized by this one year, meaning just give it one more chance. For Israel, they were given one more chance. Jesus came, and then in 70 AD, since they did not respond, there was no fruit on this fig tree. That's when it was cut down, and Jerusalem was ransacked by the Romans. They had been outside their doors, outside the walls for three and a half years. <clears throat> General Titus Eventually, when his dad took the throne, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> was given the go-ahead, and they barged through in 70 AD to the wall, through the gates of Jerusalem, entered the temple area, and completely destroyed the temple. 70 AD. Thousands and thousands of Jews were killed. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were taken as slaves to Rome. Others were in the, amongst the nations. Others fled to uh, Masada and other places, and, and they were killed there. Many died, many enslaved. Jerusalem, Jesus said, if you had only known today what would bring you peace. But there will come a time in which the Gentiles will put bulwarks or ramparts up against your walls and they will destroy you. If only today you had known what would bring you peace. And they had rejected Jesus. And the reason why is because the tree was bad. And they, like me at age 14, saying to that senior dude, you have no clue what you're, think, what you're saying. Oh, yes, he did. But I couldn't see it. And I rejected his counsel. And so when Jesus now enters the temple, Mark does this. He wraps around that story of the clearing of the temple with another story of a fig tree. Now, when I say story, please understand, this isn't like a fable. It's not a made-up story that Mark, you know, Mark or Peter made up. This is what really happened. But it's a clear visual illustration of what Jesus had just done. So what does Jesus do? He's going on his way to Jerusalem from Bethany, and he sees a fig tree. It's got leaves. It's probably late March, early April. It is not the time for figs. Figs don't happen until five months later. So what was Jesus doing? What was he looking for figs for? Well, the truth is, he wasn't looking for figs. With a fig tree, and, and I've heard atheists and read online, uh, there's some things that I like to do and see what atheists, what their take is on, on things. And they use this story as proof that, the, that Jesus is some whacked out religious 
spiritual dude that had very little good thinking. And Jesus walks up to this fig tree out of season for figs, and he curses it seriously. This is the heart of Jesus who began Christianity, and they rail on Jesus here because they don't understand the story. So about this time that Jesus approaches, you will begin to find little buds behind every single leaf on a, on a fig tree. Now, true, four or five months later, those little buds turn into figs. But in the meantime, as they grow, they turn into what's commonly, or, or at least some of them turn into what's commonly called taksh. And taksh is a little fruit. It's, it's a little bitter. It's much smaller than a fig, and it eventually, uh, throughout the tree, will produce figs. But it is the that portion, uh, it, it is that byproduct of the tree getting ready to produce figs. So you might find on a tree only about 12 of these. But if you find none, then that means that it will not produce any figs that season. And so when Jesus, when, when Mark tells us when Jesus approached and he saw only the leaves, he knew not finding any touch, this is a barren tree and it will not produce any fruit. And he cursed it. And in essence, when we look at this story of what Jesus says or the, about the temple being a house of prayer for all Gentiles. You've turned it into a den of robbers. That was his pronouncement of a curse. There is no fruit here. No fruit here. They were rather cavalier in how they approached it. There was no guilt. There was no like, wow, Jesus, so poignant. Man, I, I, we need to repent here. No, there was, there was no evidence of God's grace being poured out upon these people. It was, it was a self-centered religious feel that produced no fruit. So you might ask, you know what? I'm a true believer in Jesus this morning but I still struggle to make the gospel attractive by my words and actions. How does what Jesus is saying and doing here have anything to do with me? I am a good tree producing maybe a little bit of good fruit, but when, honestly, there's a lot of black marks in my life. The background in your life is beautiful. The grace of God has, ch has changed you. And but like me, there are th there's baggage in your life. There's marks in your life. And Jesus is wanting to do something with your life, with this scenery in your life, if you will, and not just leave the black marks there that are unattractive. And so I found myself for that year pressing into God. What is it that you're wanting to do in my life? I, I, I feel like I was camping out in guilt. I felt like it was hopeless. God's grace was enough to rescue me and save me, but apparently it wasn't enough to change me, and everybody around me knew it. I felt terrible. And God just had to begin in that year, speak volumes of grace to me. And what I want to do is I want to conclude by looking at what is it that Jesus tells his disciples? Because when they come back the next morning, they see this fig tree, it's, it's cursed and withered from the roots up. Wow. And Jesus now seizes this teachable moment. Mark, his, he wants us to see what Jesus shares here in verses 20 to 26. He wants us to see it in proper context. A withered tree, no fruit. And I'm, I'm using this morning an illustration. Yes, Israel was a bad tree, but see, we're a good tree, but we still struggle with some of these same things. And I believe the advice Jesus gives, he is now giving it to his disciples. He's not giving it to the Jews 
who are, who are rejecting him, he's giving it now to those who are following him. So what do we do about these black marks? And the first thing that he says is you have to have faith. So strong does your faith need to be, and he uses this illustration, okay? He says that you are able to speak to this mountain and be cast into the sea, and it will happen. Now, can I say, I have never spoken to a mountain and seen it uprooted and moved and cast into a sea. Now, if you were to be standing on the Mount of Olives, as the disciples were, you would be able to see off in the distance some, I don't know, 10, 20 miles, you'd be able to see the Dead Sea. So it would be very real. The mountain that they were standing on, the mountain of Olives, you would be able to speak to this mountain and it would be cast into the sea, a very visual picture for them. But Jesus, even though that would be the most, that would be the hardest thing that we could ever do, even with our sticks of dynamite, we would not be able to do that. But see, God can. And so in a very real sense, this is a true picture, but in a figurative sense, it's very true as well. Now, let, let me just explain what I'm saying here. Peter, if you remember in Acts chapter 9, Peter comes to a town. He's actually been summoned there. Because a godly widow had just died. Her name was Dorcas. Um, her, her name in Hebrew or, or Aramaic would be Tabitha, but, uh, or rather the other way around. And so when he comes there, here is this godly woman who had served the poor, served the church, and now she was dead. So Peter comes in discerning, okay, you know what? Sometimes God calls people to die and stay dead. I think we have all experienced this, okay? So sometimes you're, they're just supposed to stay dead. So God, she's an older woman. She's a widow, great young, great lady. What am I supposed to do about this? So he walks into her room and he close, he, everybody gets out. It is him and God right now. And I'm not going to say her, it's her body there, but her spirit has already left, understand. So he closes the door and he gets on his knees and he begins to pray. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what he's praying, but you can only imagine, okay, God, is she supposed to stay dead or are you going to do something absolutely marvelous in our eyes? To our knowledge, we have, I think it's three resurrections that Jesus had done in his ministry. To this point, to our knowledge, Peter had none. He had never, he had never did, done whatever he did in that room. So there he is on his knees. And at some point, the Spirit of God communicates to him that he wants to raise her from the dead. For Peter, he's maybe he's thinking. God, there's a lot of Christians outside that door, and they're relying on me, and, and you're, you're wanting to raise her from the dead. So what do you want me to do? What, what if this doesn't happen? This is, this is his ministry, his reputation on the line, but he obeys the Lord, and this is what he does. He stands up on his knees after praying, and he speaks to the woman, and she, he says, Tabitha, get up. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, please raise her from the dead. I am sure he had just been praying that. But now, to use Jesus' terms, he speaks to the mountain to be moved. This mountain of death, if I could use, a use it as a metaphor there. To speak to this mountain of death. Get out of here. You have no place here. God's will is that she be raised from the dead and not stay dead. So, mountain be removed. And he speaks to her and says, Tabitha, get up. And her spirit comes back. She sits up and she is alive again. And so Jesus says, have faith. And this is in the context of prayer because he says, when you're praying, believe that what you're asking for, you're going to receive it. Now, I, am not, I have no problem at the end of prayer saying, Lord, your will be done, because he has not revealed clearly what his will is in that situation. This happens many times. Your will be done. 
But there are times in which God gives us a sense of certainty and we speak to the mountain. Now, let me just say this. That I have, I have absolutely no problem with God showing us to do this to a literal mountain, though I don't have know of any historical record of that. Not even Jesus moved a mountain. He could have, though. Could he not have, church? But we do have something as miraculous as the dead being raised to life. And so, <clears throat> though certainly Jesus could have done this to a literal mountain, I want you to imagine, if you would, <clears throat> since you probably may not ever move mountains by speaking to them in faith. Maybe your mountain are these black lines in your life. Maybe this mountain that I think God wants you to have the attitude of Christ about and be angry about. Be angry about sin. In your anger, do not sin. That there is a sense of injustice. There's this sense of, of wrong in your life, and just say, God, help me to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, Romans 12, 9, 10. And, and allow God to stir up this anger, this hatred for evil, not hatred of you. We don't go there because even Jesus, we learned just a few weeks ago, looked at the rich young ruler who turned away and refused to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, and it says, and Jesus loved him. So I am not telling you to run contrary to that and hate yourself, okay? I am saying that we need to hate sin. We need to deal with it seriously. It's not a cavalier approach. That was the problem with the Israel, of, of the Jews. They, they treated the temple, what's the big deal, man? There's an opportunity to make some good profit here. Okay, well, hello, it's not a football stadium, right? This is not a place for concession stands. And so as a result, they lacked that godly sorrow. They lacked that hatred of sin, probably in part because they couldn't see it. When Jesus pointed it out, they were stubborn. Now, the people, some of the people, they really liked Jesus' teaching. Now, maybe part of the reason why they liked it is because he really gave it to the, to the Pharisees. But the Pharisees, the, the, those people who were involved, they couldn't see it, couldn't understand it. They were bad trees producing bad fruit. Jesus says, speak to this mountain. You need to speak to that mountain in your life. And after you've prayed and maybe fasted, speak to it that God would remove it from your life or do something so that he would display his grace in your life. Now, let me move on here. He, he says in the very same context, he says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you will receive it and it will be done. In verse 25, listen to this. And when you stand praying, and he is not going off topic here, and I'm going to explain in just a moment, but this is what he says. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Can I just be really honest with you? God began to deal with these black lines in my life. And it was hard. And in this process, and by process, I mean more than a decade. I'm married, I have some kids, and I find myself in prayer realizing that there are still more black lines in my life that God is needing to deal with. And I begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together and I realized that a lot of them are there because of hurts in my life. A lot of them were there because of my dad. I'm early, in my early 30s, and I find myself getting angry with my father, my dad. My dad was an anger-filled man. He said and did things that were just plain wrong. Some years later, God had to actually break my dad. And for the first time, when, he was, when God was breaking my dad, I saw my dad cry. And God truly broke my dad. Years before that, though, here I am struggling with anger towards him, like it's his fault. And God had to lead me to forgive my dad. Because my dad 
helped contribute to a lot of these black marks in my life. And I struggled with them. I struggled with them. But now I was struggling with anger, misplaced anger towards my dad. And Jesus was saying, forgive him. You need to forgive him. Some of those things in your life, they're there because someone hurt you. It wasn't your fault. Now, it may be how you responded that was wrong, but you know what? What happened to you in your life was beyond your control. And Jesus wants to take these black marks in your life and he wants to use them as now a canvas to display his grace. So let me tell you in the very beginning about this chalk talk. Let me tell you what this man did. So with that black chalk in his hand, he began with every single one of these six to eight long black marks. It made the canvas look terrible. He began to create pine trees with them. And just, and just the way he does, it, it was amazing. And when he was done, those black lines that were now turned into pine trees made the scenery so brilliant, so beautiful, so scenic. You wanted to go and visit that place and camp there on the lake and go fishing if you're a fisherman. Take your boat out into the middle of the pond, throw your line in, kick back for a couple of hours, hope the fish bite, and just enjoy the scenery. That's what you wanted to, to do when, you, when he was all done. And he made that picture so attractive. Now, do you get the point here? Jesus wants to reach into your life and all of those black marks, he wants to pour out his grace into you, but it's got to start with you forgiving. But I'm going to tell you this, when you can forgive, you will be opening up the door to God's grace. And when God's grace comes in, he begins to take all of those black lines and turn them into something beautiful. Can you trust him for that? Those hurts in my life because my dad did some things that made me and actually almost all of my brothers as well insecure kids that repelled people. People would make fun of us because we had learned some really bad ways to deal with those hurts. And even when we were older, we were constantly in competition, okay? For whatever reason, we were talking about push-ups. So we'd get down and we would do as many push-ups and we would say, oh yeah, well, I can do more. And it was just a silly, stupid competition. And we would try and outdo one another. That's how bad it was. And even as grown men, and God needed to reach down and needed to take those black marks and those hurts and those insecurities and those all of that anger and be able to pour out his grace and make something beautiful in our lives. That's what God wants to do with your life now. If you are still outside of his grace and you have never experienced his saving grace, have faith in God today to come and rescue you and forgive you of all of your sins and transform you. But don't stop there. For me, I was angry with my dad. I was angry with God. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You're just angry. You're so disappointed. Can you forgive? Can you allow God and trust him to just take that scenery in your life and all of those black marks? and turn them into something beautiful? Can you let God do that? Can you trust him for that? God wants to make your life this canvas of his grace. That's why he allows things in your life. You step back and you say, God, I don't get it. Why would you allow this in my life? Why would you allow this person to do this in my life? Why would you allow me to set me up and now I'm addicted to pornography? And God, I, I don't get this. Speak to the mountain, that it be removed and allow God's grace to flood in your life. Forgive those you need to. He will take those marks, those black marks, that junk in your life. And instead of repelling people, repelling the nations, they would want to look into your life and say, wow, I can see that God is really doing something in your life. Have you ever had someone, a non-Christian, tell you after you became a Christian something, Wow, you've really changed. 
And they, they begin to see this, the fingerprints of God's grace in your life. They begin to see the trees. Can you stand with me? Let's, let's do something right now. Maybe some of you need to just forgive, and that's what we're going to do. Let's allow God's grace into our lives right now. Father, I, I ask you, Lord, help us. We're, we're struggling. So many of us, we're struggling. We need to forgive. We need to stop being angry with you. And we need to open that door to our hearts and allow your grace to come flooding in. We need to surrender. You have not given up on us. You still love us. You haven't cursed the fig tree because that's not in your nature to do to your children. But you're wanting room to move, to work, to grow us. And so this morning we invite you have your way here, God. Take this junk, take these black lines, take these marks in my life. I, they're ugly. I, I can't do anything with them. They're shameful. They offend. They hurt. And I need you to change me, God. Just right now, church, if there's somebody that you need to forgive and you feel they owe you something, cancel that debt right now. Release them. Forgive them. Let them go. Let it go. Let the offense go. They owe you nothing. Forgive. And God, I just ask that as people are doing this right now all over the sanctuary, God, I ask that your grace would be poured out, would come into their lives and would transform them, God, and would change them and be producing this amazing display of your grace in transforming that which the enemy means for evil into that which God wants to produce as something good, as a testament to his grace. Father, let every single one of us here this morning be that testimony of your grace become that canvas for your beautiful work of grace. Please, God, thank you, Lord. We trust you for this, Lord. We speak to this mountain. Be moved. Be gone. Grace of God, envelop me. And I thank you, Father, that your plans for us are so very good and are only accomplished by your grace. So here, God, have your way in my life. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.